James chapter 3. Going to handle the rest of this chapter this morning and uh, move into chapter 4 next week. The overarching theme of this passage here this morning is wisdom, and you see it there in the text. Now, rarely will you find a person who considers himself to be a fool. I don't know that I've met a single person who's like, yeah, I'm just a, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm foolish. I'm crazy. I'm not sharp. I'm not intelligent. Generally, people don't consider themselves to be foolish. Most people, in fact, even if they know that they're not as intelligent or perhaps book smart as everyone else, they still consider themselves to be clever or intuitive or discerning or otherwise wise. Some people, however, aren't content with just considering themselves to be wise. They want to make sure that everyone else is aware of their wisdom and understanding too. They spend time and energy assuring others of their understanding of Scripture, of how well-read that they are, of their giftedness to teach and to lead, and the many affirmations they've received in these areas from others in their past. James is dealing with such people in the churches that he is writing to. Now last week we learned together that there were some people, perhaps even many people, in these churches that James is writing this letter to, who were jockeying for leadership and teaching positions in the church. He had to warn that not many should become teachers in verse 1 of this chapter, and he cautioned the church to evaluate those seeking these positions by their words. Do you guys remember that last week? Evaluate them by their speech, by their words. This was the message of verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3. So evaluate these people by their words. Well, this week he adds to that this. Evaluate them by their wisdom. And James offers us criteria by which we can evaluate them and listen and ourselves as well. What he's going to do in these verses is he's going to contrast for us true wisdom, what he calls wisdom from above, over and against false wisdom what he calls wisdom from below. The fact that he contrasts two types of wisdom means that not everyone who claims to be wise and understanding actually is. So this morning's memo is simple. You might not be as wise as you think you are. Not a single amen to that statement. That is so surprising. I didn't see that coming. But it's true. You might not be as wise as you think you are. Your neighbor might not be as wise as they think that they are. But let's dive into the text and let's help each other find out. He begins in verse 13 by asking a rhetorical question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he gives the answer of the person who is in fact truly wise. And as he provides this answer in verse 13, he's going to give us a general description or a summarization of what a truly wise person looks like. And then he'll get into the detailed contrast between the true wisdom and the false wisdom. So here, again, is a general description of the truly wise. It's true wisdom in a tweet, if you will. He says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Notice with me here in verse 13 that we see that wisdom is visible. 
James says, let him show. You can observe wisdom. You can see it. Jesus said in Luke 7.35 that wisdom is justified by all of her children. What does he mean by that? Jesus meant that you can see wisdom by what it produces. You can observe it. You can behold it with your eyes and go, aha, there's wisdom or the lack thereof. Just as our faith shows, right, that was part of the message in James chapter 2, just as our faith shows, now we see that wisdom, or lack thereof, shows too. He tells us in this verse that the truly wise will have good conduct, meaning consistent Christian behavior carried out in the meekness of wisdom. So, wisdom expresses itself in a life of consistent Christian behavior done in a spirit of meekness or humility. Consistent Christian behavior done in a spirit of meekness or humility. The truly wise, and therefore the only people who are really qualified to be leaders in the church, are humble, unassuming, and consistent. There's no self-promotion. They're not campaigning for themselves. They're not building a party or a coalition in the church. And they're certainly not living a life of hypocrisy. Well, now he gets into this contrast starting in verse 14. He's going to begin with false wisdom or wisdom from below and then contrast that against, again, true wisdom. Wisdom from above. So let's begin with the false wisdom. Wisdom from below. If you're a note taker, you can write down that he's going to show us the characteristics of false wisdom, the source of it, in other words, where does it come from, and the results or what it produces in the church body. So characteristics, source, and results. What are the characteristics of a person who possesses false wisdom? Look again at verse 14. James writes, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The first characteristic of a person who possesses not true wisdom, but false wisdom, is bitter jealousy. Another way to put that would be bitter envy. That word jealousy is really envy. Now, this is not just a craving for what someone else has. It's bitterness or frustration about the fact that they have it and you don't. This person is not just jealous, they are bitterly jealous. The story is told of two men who lived in a certain city. One was envious and the other was covetous. The ruler of the city sent for them and he said that he wanted to grant each of them one wish. With this qualifier, that the one who chose first would get exactly what he asked for. But the one who didn't choose would get twice as much as the first man had asked for himself. Neither man wanted to go first. The envious man knew that his envy would grow worse if the other man had twice what he got. And the covetous man knew that his covetousness would grow worse if the other man got twice what he got. Well, eventually, the ruler ordered the envious man to choose first. And so he sat. And he thought long and hard about what he might want for himself. And then he asked that one of his eyes 
would be put out. What an ugly story. But it helps us to see the truly ugly nature of bitter envy. The second related characteristic here of the person who possesses false wisdom is selfish ambition. Now this is a rare term in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, and it's found before the New Testament only in Aristotle. And there the term means the selfish and unscrupulous pursuit of political office. In other words, this is a person who, if not careful, will be driven to get the position that they want by any means necessary. Now, ambition is a good desire, especially if you have ambition to glorify God and you have ambition to do good to your neighbor. That's a great thing. But selfish ambition, what James is warning against here, is deadly and destructive. Allowed to grow up in a person's heart, or allowed to grow up in a church family like ours, it would ultimately sacrifice the glory of God and the good of neighbor to achieve its own ends. So these are the characteristics of the person who possesses false wisdom. In their hearts, they are ruled by bitter envy, and they are ruled by selfish ambition. Now notice with me what James tells that person not to do in verse 14. He says in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. Those who were filled with these sinful attitudes of heart were boasting about it. Now when I read that, I I think this is kind of weird. Like why would somebody who is sinful and operating in sinful ways be arrogant about that or boast about that to other people? This is really important. The reason why a person might boast about these sins is because they probably wouldn't see them for what they actually are. Our hearts are deceptive, family. And all of us are very, very good at putting a spin on our particular sins and seeing them in a totally different light. Greg Gilbert points out, if your heart is filled with bitter envy, you probably don't recognize it as such. You probably call it a desire for fairness and insist on the wisdom of your own position. Do you see what he's saying? He's he's saying, if you really have this bitter envy and you're envious of other people, you'll you'll just write that off as, no, 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 I just want there to be fairness here. And clearly I have the gifting and the capacity to be doing what they're doing. Therefore, I should be in that position. And how easily is selfish ambition cloaked as a desire to serve God or to use the gifts that he's given to me. What can we say in summary about the characteristics of false wisdom? The person who possesses it is governed by self-interest. The thing that is driving this person is themselves and what they can get, what they can have. So those are the characteristics. What about the source? Where does this kind of wisdom actually originate? Where does it come from? Well, verse 15 tells us, James writes, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. James is showing us the source of this wisdom, and it is not coming from above, which is a way of saying coming from God, but instead is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. 
The wisdom or understanding that is self-serving, that is motivated by envy and selfish ambition, is in line with the world's values and the world's way of thinking. This is not heaven's. Whatever claims this type of person might make to being spiritual or to being godly or an obvious choice for a leader and teacher in the church are to be totally rejected. Listen, it doesn't matter how long they've been a part of the church. It doesn't matter how much scripture they know. It doesn't matter how successful they are professionally out there. It doesn't matter how many Instagram followers they have. They aren't in tune with God. Just like last week, the person with destructive speech, we learned that that destructive speech is set on fire by hell. James now traces the false wisdom possessed by those governed by self-interest to have its ultimate source in the kingdom of darkness. Isn't that heavy to think about? That ultimately where this is originating from is the kingdom of darkness. Now that's not to say that every person who's bitter and jealous and ruled by selfish ambition is demon-possessed or something. That's not what James is saying. What he's saying is a little bit more sophisticated than that. He's saying that ungodly human interests can actually serve satanic interests. The self-serving individual is unknowingly furthering Satan's agenda and not God's agenda. Now I want to point out one more thing in verse 14 for us. If you look at it again, notice that the place that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are located is in the heart. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. So the question then becomes, if these are sins of the heart, how would we be able to know whether somebody was operating in them or living in them? Answer, by looking at their results. And this brings us to the third point here on this false wisdom, which is the results in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James is saying that the root of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition will produce the fruit of disorder and every vile practice. Now, this word disorder means unruliness, or it means a person who likes to cause riots. Okay, you want to stir up a disturbance. It's a disturbance in the community. Now, Chris Morgan comments on this word that false wisdom is accompanied by damage to churches. The person who is possessed by bitter envy and selfish ambition, who has these characteristics governing their heart, will produce destruction in the church. Because people who are ruled by these things can't help but develop factions and parties in the church to support their agenda. They try to recruit people to their team. And in doing so, it opens the door for every vile practice. Things like grumbling and complaining. Things like criticizing and gossiping and slandering and undermining. So the way to know if someone is operating in false wisdom is that their contribution to this church family 
is destructive. They will contribute to division, factions, and turmoil. Well, what about true wisdom? What about the person who is ruled by the kind of wisdom that the scriptures would commend us to have? Let's shift gears and talk now about this true wisdom. Wisdom from above. And again, we're going to look at the source, the characteristics, and the results of it. He begins with the source in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. True wisdom is wisdom that comes from above. It's wisdom that God gives. If you go back to chapter 1 in verse 17, you, you'll see there that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And now here in chapter 3, we see that wisdom is one of those good gifts that comes down from above that God gives to people. So unlike false wisdom, which is earthly and in line with the agenda of Satan, true wisdom is from above and is in line with the truth of God. According to the Bible, if people are left to their own devices, and if people are left to their own wisdom, they are doomed. Here's what Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. When we sit and we ignore God, and we don't factor Him into the equation, and we don't seek His wisdom, then when we do our calculations in life, and we determine this is the way that seems right to me, or this is the way that seems best to me, ultimately we are on a path that leads to our own destruction. What we need then is we need a wisdom that is outside of ourselves. You need a counselor beyond yourself. What we need is wisdom that comes to us from above. Well, how do we get it? How do we get that kind of wisdom? Well, for starters, God sent it down to us in the pages of this book. This book that is sitting in your lap this morning, the Scriptures, the Bible. God has given us His wisdom in this book. And you should know, that wisdom is calling out to us from the pages of Scripture, inviting us to drink deeply from her well, saying, if you want wisdom, you can have it. Here's Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So here in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as this woman who is not trying to hold back wisdom from people. She's freely offering it. She's saying, do you want to be wise? Do you want understanding? Come, you can have it. I'll give it to you. In Psalm 19.7, we see this idea of wisdom being rooted in Scripture. We read there that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We have a source of wisdom, and it's come down to us from above, and it's here for us in the pages of Scripture. 
But God's wisdom didn't only come down to us in the pages of this book. It came down to us supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read a passage out of 1 Corinthians that explains this to us, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, God asks. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, in this passage, Christ is the wisdom of God in the sense that God's grand design for saving His people and God's grand design for redeeming the entire cosmos is bound up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is through Him that our sins can be forgiven. It is in Him that we can become children of God. It is in Him that we come to share in the resurrection. And so what that means is that no matter what else you figure out in life, no matter what else you get right in life, if you miss out on that truth, you'll have been a fool. There's no nice way to say it. You will stand before God and you will realize that whatever wisdom you thought you possessed amounts to utter foolishness. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way. Wisdom is standing here before you this morning in the pages of Scripture, in the power of the Spirit, calling out to you and saying, do you want to be made wise? Then receive the wisdom of God who is Christ Himself. So this is the source of wisdom. It's heaven's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It comes down to us from outside of ourselves. What about wisdom's characteristics? Look at verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James here has this like beautiful virtue list that he lays out for us. And we're going to get into them one by one. But as we do, I want you to notice how all of these characteristics are things that James has already called us to in this epistle. He's basically just saying, look, the, the life that I've called you to, and really that God has called you to already, is what it looks like to be a person marked by wisdom. The first item here is that the wisdom from above is pure. It's pure in the sense of being spotless or being undefiled. God's wisdom is undefiled. And the person who has received God's wisdom is likewise living a life of purity. Now notice how this idea of being undefiled echoes James' definition of true religion back in chapter 1, verse 27. We read there that 
Ultimately, the person who is practicing true religion needs to keep themselves unstained from the world. This is a person who is living a life of purity. Also, notice that this is similar to the qualification for the office of a pastor or a teacher in 1 Timothy 3.2, where Paul writes, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. They, ha- they must live a life that is impeachable, not perfect, but pure, morally upright. You wouldn't look at this person's life and say, oh, no, 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 there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of charges that we can bring against this person's character. You should be able to look at this person and go, this is a morally upright person, a godly person. This is a person who is the polar opposite of the person who participates in every vile practice. Next, we see that this person is peaceable, Whereas the person who's filled with the false wisdom contributes to disorder and chaos in the church, the person who's filled with true wisdom, with God's wisdom, contributes to peace in the church. They are, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Romans 14.19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The person of true wisdom is striving for unity, is seeking peace, fighting for peace. And how do they do that? Not with a sword, not with a baseball bat. They fight for peace by being gentle, the next characteristic we see. This person is marked by gentleness. Judah, my oldest son, has been eagerly collecting lizards as his latest hobby. And for a long time, he was scared of collecting lizards. He didn't want to just go grab a lizard. He'd kind of walk up, and I knew he wanted to to grab one, but he was kind of scared. But as of the last couple of weeks, he's actually become courageous enough to grab them, and he'll hold on to them. And at first, I'm seeing these tiny little lizards in the hands of a very aggressive and, shall I say, energetic seven-year-old boy. And I'm thinking, these poor lizards are going to get crushed. So I would say to him, son, be gentle, be gentle. And those lizards, when he was first catching them, would be so freaked out because he's rough. He'd just grab them and he's holding them and he's nervous and they would lose their tail and they'd be freaking out. And so I'd have to explain to him why they lost their tail. They're trying to get away from you. They're scared of you. But what's cool is I've been telling him, be gentle. What that means is just think about how the lizard feels. Walk up gently to him. Let him see that you're not mean, that you're not going to hurt him. Try to take the lizards in your hand. And he's been holding lizards now and not just stuffing them into his pocket and jumping off rocks and stuff. He's holding them really gently. And some of these lizards are no longer losing their tail. He's being gentle. He's thinking about how the lizard feels, how he can comfort and take care of the poor lizards. A person who's gentle is a person who's delicate with other people. A gentle person is sensitive to how their words and how their actions will impact another person. And they are, as chapter 1, verse 19 put it, slow to anger. When conflict arises in the church community, they're the type of person who practices Proverbs 15, 1, where we read, a soft answer turns away wrath. Not only are they gentle, but they're open to reason Some of your Bibles might translate that submissive, which is an okay translation in the sense that this person is willing to yield. 
This person is not insistent on their own way. This is a person who can actually give preference to others. But open to reason is a better translation. Godly wisdom doesn't make you an arrogant know-it-all. Remember, godly wisdom is practiced in a spirit of humility. The person with the true wisdom doesn't try to prove that she or he's got it all figured out. They're teachable. They're open to good ideas of others. And they're not insecure because of their ignorance. I remember being in a church that I visited years ago. And I was young in ministry at the time and wasn't a pastor at that point. And I remember this was a church that not only when the service was over did they go have a meal like we're going to do today, but after they all feasted, they would come back into the church and they'd spend about 30 minutes to an hour peppering the pastor with questions based off of his sermon. Anybody, want, you guys want to do that after church today? I don't, I'll be tired. I don't really want to do that. But that's what they did week in and week out. So he would come back and I think he was just sitting on a stool and everybody would, from their notes, would just, hey, I had a question about this and I had a question about that. And he was fielding these questions and I'm sitting there as a 23-year-old going, wow, this is really cool that he's doing that. But the coolest part about it was there was this, um, this one guy who asked a, a kind of technical question in the, in, in the text and the pastor's response was, you know what, that's a really good question and I'm not quite sure how to answer that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go research that this week and try to come up with an answer for you and, and we'll get together and talk. And I sat and thought to myself, what a, what a humble attitude. Like he was not at all threatened by the question. He wasn't concerned that, oh my gosh, is the church going to think I'm an idiot and I don't have it all together if I confess that I don't know the answer to this and instead just make up some answer. He was comfortable just saying, I'm not sure. But as your pastor, I'll try to do my best to figure that out. And I just remember being so formed by that experience. And it was such a beautiful picture of what a spiritually minded person is like. They don't have to have it all together. They're not a know-it-all. They're open to reason. Next, we see that they're full of mercy and good fruits. So this person is eager to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, like chapter 1, verse 27 taught, and to show mercy rather than pronounce judgment, like chapter 2, verse 13 taught, and to meet the needs of the brother or sister who is poorly clothed or in need of daily food, like chapter 2, verse 15 taught. This is a person who's not content with just feeling bad about somebody who's in need. This is a person who says, no, 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 no. I actually have to act on this. I have to help this person. I have to be a source of deliverance for this person who is in need. A few weeks ago, uh, Ryan and I were able to talk with a lady who had fallen on hard times and um, she was basically out of money and was trying to figure out how she was going to meet her needs. And she basically asked us if we'd pray for her. And so, of course, we did and prayed for her. And we just felt so bad. And she had to go and, and take off. She was trying to get her, her car fixed. And she started walking away from the church. And Ryan and I start walking back in. And I'm going to brag on Ryan for a minute here. But Ryan turns to me and he goes, Daniel, what can we do? For, we have got to do something for her right now. What, what can we do? And so we kind of just put our heads together. and Well, what do we have at our disposal right now? And we were able to run out and we actually just ran this woman down and we gave her resources for gas and for groceries and some other things. And she just started bawling in that moment. And she was so, so thankful that there was this practical demonstration of the love of Christ. And we were able to say, look, it, this is about the Lord and this is about what God's doing. And God loves you. And we just want to help show that to you. And our church family wants to help 
show that to you. But I loved that. It was like, yeah, we prayed for her, and that's wonderful. But how do we actually help in this moment? And the person who is full of mercy and good fruits is not okay just seeing the need. Their heart is saying, no, 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 no. Is there something I can do to meet the need? Next, we see that they're impartial. I won't spend time on this, but they treat everyone the same. They don't fall into the trap of making the ungodly distinctions between people based on what they think they can get out of them that we described in chapter 2. And lastly, we see that they're sincere. This is the opposite of being a hypocrite. It's the opposite of double-mindedness. Who this person is on Sunday when they gather to worship is the same person they are Monday through Saturday. What you see is what you get. There's no hidden agenda. They're not jockeying for position. There are pure motives behind their acts of service in and out of the church. In summary, the characteristics of those who have true wisdom, the wisdom from above, are a life of godly conduct flowing out of a pure heart. They are humble, unassuming, and concerned about the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. They typify the mind of Christ that Paul describes in Philippians 2, 3-5, where he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, lastly, let's look at the results of the person who has true wisdom. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What does true wisdom result in? A harvest of of righteousness. How is that harvest sown? It's sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers causing peace creates a harvest of righteousness. Jesus told us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James' teaching here is instructive, but it's also a warning, a warning for us to be discerning. A warning to remind us that not everyone who claims to be wise really is. It's another warning to judge a tree by its fruit. The way to know if someone is operating in false wisdom is that their contribution to the church is destructive. They will contribute to division, factions, turmoil, and every kind of sin. But the way to know if someone is operating in true wisdom is that their contribution to the church is constructive. They produce peace by pursuing peace, and their efforts plant the seeds that grow up into a harvest of righteousness. So in closing, I ask you, even as I ask myself, what's your contribution to the church? Are you sowing the seeds of bitter envy and selfish ambition, which is producing destruction in this body? If so, God is calling you to repent, to stop aligning yourself with the purposes of Satan, to stop sabotaging the bride of Christ. For some here who are true believers, but perhaps have drifted, that means having your heart realigned with the heart of God, having your desires and your values rebaptized in the values of the kingdom, and confessing any sins that you've committed against others 
to those that you sinned against. And if this is you, we're not mad at you. We love you. In fact, we love you so much that we want nothing more than to see you spiritually healthy, restored, and building up the body of Christ. For any here this morning that are not yet Christians, God is calling you to come to your senses, to wise up, so to speak, to recognize that apart from a relationship with him through his son, by faith, no matter what else you figure out in life, you're missing the biggest, most important key. Because true life is life in Christ. What about those who are operating in true wisdom? What about those who are sowing the seeds of peace in the spirit of humility, which is producing righteousness in the church? Are there there marching orders for you? Yes. If that's you this morning, God is calling you to double down your efforts. God is calling you to grow even more earnest in that pursuit. God is calling you to continue building up the body of Christ until, as Ephesians 4.13 puts it, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen? Amen. I want to close with a prayer for all of us. Um, I would like to use Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 17 through 23 as a prayer for our own church and for each of our own hearts. So let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.